1964, President Lyndon B. Johnson declared the war on poverty in his State of the Union speech. So shortly thereafter, Sergeant Shriver, an American diplomat, politician, and activist, took the lead in assembling a panel of experts to develop a comprehensive child development program to help communities meet the needs of disadvantaged and inner city school children, especially preschool children. Sergeant Shriver was the driving force behind the creation of the Peace Corps, Job Corps, Head Start, and other programs as the architect of the 1960s War on Poverty. This is very interesting because part of the government's thinking on poverty was influenced by some research at the time that said that the effects of poverty, as well as the impacts on education, were highly negative. The research indicated an obligation to help disadvantaged social groups. So the objective was to compensate for inequality in social and economic conditions. I want to go back and talk about the Head Start program. It was designed to help break the cycle of poverty. And the objective was to provide preschool children, particularly low-income families, with a comprehensive program to meet emotional, social, health, nutritional, and even psychological needs. One of the key tenets of the program established that to be culturally responsive to the communities served, that the communities themselves would have an investment in its success. Through the volunteers' contribution of hours and donations from non-federal share. So that was in the early 60s. Fast forward to 1967. My mom volunteered at Head Start. And I'm one of three children. I'm the youngest. And she had nothing to do with me except take me with her to Head Start. So I remember we carpooled with a wonderful woman named Jeannie Donsker for two years. In 1967 and 1968, I was part of the Head Start program because my mom was volunteering. And I remember the woman running the program was a wonderful person named Gay Ponder. And every day, every student would climb up on the little ladder and sit and she would give them a health checkup. Then we'd play games, learn letters, and I have a vivid recollection of the things we did. We'd have a meal, an afternoon nap, some storytelling, and then I'll go home. I was very friendly with a, another little boy named Jimmy. And I remember during the health check, Jimmy would always tell me that he got bruised because he would fall down the steps a lot at home. I was too young to know that that was probably an indication of child abuse. And I remember asking my mom, how could it be that somebody could fall down the steps so much because he seems okay the rest of the time when we're on the slide or when we're playing games? And unfortunately, it was years later that I realized that he must have been victim of some abuse. I don't know anything about Jimmy today. I don't even know his last name, though my thoughts and prayers accompany him today. So in 1968, my Head Start days were over because, being five years old, I was soon going to attend Homecroft Elementary Kindergarten. And at the time, kindergarten was a half-day adventure, and I was in Miss McCarthy's kindergarten class. I remember one of the events for me 
being in the afternoon kindergarten class is that I would walk there on my own and walk home with my brother and sister who were two years older and already in elementary school. My mom, my dad, my sister, and my brother taught me the way to school, and I memorized it, and I was very proud of the fact that I knew how to get to Homecraft. First day of kindergarten was very interesting and fun, and after my first day of kindergarten, I came home, and I was shocked at what I saw at Homecraft Elementary. So I asked my mom and my dad why there were only white kids, whereas at Head Start, we had all sorts of kids. We had Native American children, Hispanic children, African American children, you name it. I was only four and five years old, so I don't really know. Well, my mother said, we live in a white neighborhood. And I never knew it. And that was the first time I really understood there were different kinds of neighborhoods. My earliest memories are therefore based on a world that I thought was the way it was and not the world I was growing up in. So I knew early on that there was a racially divided USA and I started to learn that it was not a happy place. Because I remember when I was five, watching Martin Luther King's funeral on TV and also watching Robert Kennedy, who were both shot in the same year. I remember watching them on our Setchell Carlson TV. And those were the TVs back in the 60s with wooden doors on them. So when you weren't watching TV, you'd close the doors. So now fast forward to where we are in 2020. I was fortunate to visit my father, who's 90 years old, in March 2020, just before COVID set in, making travel impossible. And my father was being looked after by two caregivers. And I had the opportunity to talk to Annie Johnson, who was one of my father's wonderful caregivers at the adult living community where he was. And I don't think the conversation with Annie would have evolved into the interviews that occurred if it hadn't been for a sense of inquiry and interest in each other's lives. I live outside the United States, and I'm fundamentally curious about people's leadership experiences as well as the times and place that demonstrated resilience. Additionally, I adhere to the fact that oral histories are vital to understand the past so we don't repeat it. I recall a quote I saw that moved me. Those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it. Now, after some research, I found that this quote might be from philosopher George Santayana and may actually have read, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Nonetheless, to remember history, we need to learn from it. So I asked Annie about her life and her childhood. And going back to those moments at Head Start from my 1960s, I wanted to understand hers. And what a gift she gave us. Not only does she tell us what it was like growing up in the southern part of the United States as a sharecropper's daughter, I learned what happened when she moved north, attended racially integrated schools, and some of the trials and tribulations she went through. My hope is these recordings demonstrate that leadership is not just something that happens in corporations and boardrooms. Leadership is something that happens in people's own personal lives and families and the communities where we live and where we interact. What I heard from Annie is how 
her family, her father, how she personally took leadership in some very trying times. I invite you to listen to these four recordings with the same sense of inquiry and understanding to not only have bilateral worlds, rather worlds where it's not my way or your way, which is right or wrong, that we live in a world of both and, of understanding each other's perspectives. So these come together and we can create something better. And as usual, I look forward to your questions, comments, and discoveries, and I encourage you to go forth and interview those around you. Because when we know each other's story, it creates positive intent and understanding. So be leader-like. <laughs>